I want to, this morning, offer a suggestion for a prayer for the new year. Now, I'm going to warn you, it may not fall into, you know what, I could almost see, I'm working at trying to get rid of these and see if I can heal my own eyes. It's not not working quite yet. It may not be rated, you might say, as one of the top ten greatest prayers to make, especially for when you're thinking of new beginnings. In fact, some of you might say, Glenn, that's the opposite of that pendulum swing. That ranks in some of the top ten worst prayers I've ever been asked to say. It's a really short prayer, and I want you to think about it. It's only five words, and it goes like this. Lord, break me, crush me. You're going, okay, I get it. You're not coming to our next prayer meeting. Many would say the world has done a good enough job already. I don't need to pray for that anymore. So why would you even consider such a prayer, Glenn? What possibly could motivate me? Well, there's always one thing that motivates, motivates me, and it's Scripture. So I'm going to give you Psalm 51:17. It is our text, and it reads, My sacrifice... O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. In other words, this is something God's looking for. In the text, I want you to focus on four words. Broken, contrite, heart, and spirit. Because when you look at the original Hebrew intent of these words, they go as follows. Broken means literally broken, to break, literally in pieces. Contrite, to crush. Feeling the weight or expressing remorse. Heart is one inner uh, inner person, your mind or your will, and spirit in this context is breath or wind. So when I looked at this, I said, you know, I'm going to explain through the rest of the time we have together, but if we did a paraphrase of this, it may look something or sound something like this. Lord, here is what I offer to you, what I surrender to you, all of me, including my desires. I will no longer do things my way or on my terms. All of it, my body, my job, my relationships, it's all yours. I lay it down. All that I have, all that I want, my hopes, my dreams, my prayers, my plans, they're all yours. So for the next little bit, I'm going to explain why I believe this is where David is going and why I believe God desires such a prayer. And we're going to start with the context of our text, verse 17, by going to verse 16. And in that it says, you do not delight in sacrifice, David says, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. You see, King David, who penned these words, understood a truth, a truth that was necessary, he thought, to guide every step we take, a truth that reverberates throughout our text, and really, it's a theme that weaves its way all through scriptures. It is a truth that has been twisted. It's a truth that has been contorted and used to bring legalism into the church life and the Christian life. A truth that a war has been waged against. A truth that has been falsely interpreted, leading many to, well, live wrong. It's a truth Satan tried to take out of context and demonically enhance a temptation before our Lord and Savior after his 40 days of prayer and fasting. 
And what is that truth? God doesn't want outward transactions, but inward transformation. He doesn't want just outward transactions with him. He wants an inward transformation. Now, do our lives change when we're in a relationship with God? Can we expect that? Absolutely. You can't read James without realizing that it's got to follow through in what you believe, the Apostle Paul. And so we are expected to, yes, live differently. But there's an outcome what that has to take place first deep within us. And it was the thing that Jesus fought against when he ministered in the context of his culture. And that's why we read in Matthew 23, 27, he says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but in the inside, you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. Now, Again, that's one extreme example of the inward transformation pendulum in the negative sense, legalism. But then there's another that shows just how powerful this truth is on the other end of that pendulum. A man, we're told in Scripture, loses everything he has almost in a blimp of history. His family, his health, his wealth, everything gone and lost. And yet he exclaims as this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head, then he fell to the ground in worship. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken and contrite heart. You know, as an expecting parent back in the late 80s, I had every intention to create such an environment of love and acceptance and tolerance and joy as a parent that there was no way any one of my children would dare disobey me for any extended period of time. You know, we all have our moments, but no, overall... Well, the context of our text this morning is King David having one of those moments, but in a very large-scale sense. He just had an adulterous affair, had the husband killed, (laughs) an innocent man. So, of course, we would say David has reason to have a broken and contrite. Don't we all, though? Or dare we fall sometimes in that temptation to somehow begin to classify sin? We like to do that. Paul wisely stated in Romans, we all know it, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. We all perform poorly. We all carry a sin nature. There is this natural tendency for us not to pursue God, but many times to flee from him. And again, it was the message behind Jesus' words illustrating the reality when he said two men came to the temple to pray. Matthew 18, 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evil doers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken and contrite heart. See, contrite was a feeling or expression of remorse. In other words, I was impacted by guilt. And that is, as we're told in Scripture, a good thing. It's beginning to say no to self and yes to God. It's the recognition that there is an impact of sinful choices in our lives. We say, well, I I, I may not kill anybody, have an adulterous affair, but boy... 
I have looked for satisfaction in another rather than only the one who can satisfy. I've had many idols in my life. You see, we fall into a trap with regards to sin and its impact in our lives. As one author wrote, it's not about our inability to do right. It's about despising God. And you go, well, hold on. That's a little harsh. It was a little white lie. It was a few lines on the tax form. I I didn't kill anyone. And yet Samuel wrote in 2 Samuel 12, 9, Why did you despise, despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil? And then I thought, well, you know, even how we understand the word evil. Evil is not simply just the bad sins, that somehow we have these high-rating categorical sins that, you know, even when I looked up on the computer the definition of evil, I loved what they said, profoundly immoral and wicked. Profoundly. Somehow there's, oh, those are the big ones. Now that's evil. And yet Isaiah 66, 4 says, For when I called, God said, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. And I went, displeases is a far cry from profoundly. Sin is sin. Evil is choices displeasing God. All have sinned. All fall short. And here's a a reality I want us to dwell on. Stop viewing sin simply as a failure of performance. And we need to begin to see it as a failure in intimacy with our God. It's not just about being caught. Why do you think David continued in Psalm 51.4 and he said, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, sin in David's eyes was seen in the terms of his relationship with God. Yeah, he sinned against Bathsheba and obviously her husband who was killed and all those things. But it boiled down to anything I do that displeases God becomes this barrier between me and him. So my sacrifice, O God, is a broken and contrite heart. And you see, the more we see God as this glorious, awesome, and holy, the more we begin to see sin not just as something we messed up again, but see sin as something that just makes us weep. It hurts to that extent. Why? Because I can't hear God anymore. I'm growing distant. It's broken the most important relationship that exists in my life. And so repentance becomes less about just bad behavior, as bad as it is, but it's about feeling awe and delight and intimacy toward God. It's what I was getting at when we see throughout Scripture, learning the fear of the Lord. This awe and respect in God's presence that once you taste it, you're going, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm messing this up. This has been... An idol of our choice, by the way, and that's people. People are our favorite idols when I look at things that displease God. And what is the impact of people idolatry? Well, we do remember that whatever we fear tends to overcome us. So if you fear taxes, you hate a certain time of the year. If you fear the role, whatever. And these idols, people as insignificant as they are compared to God, our creator, they become real big in our lives. 
And so we find ourselves finding that people begin to tell us how to think, how to feel, how to act, tells us what to wear and how to even laugh at inappropriate jokes to be part of the group, how to cut corners. It tells us to be fearful of many things or go by feelings, not facts. It's quite different when we come to God and said, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken and contrite heart. I'm here. I'm yours. I want to surrender everything. I'm willing to give up everything, health, just like Job and countless others throughout Scripture. I give up my plans for the new year. I give up my future, my dreams. I'll give up my career. I'll give up even my spouse, my children, grandchildren. See, sacrifice only works if you're willing to give up something that's of value to you. If no value, it's not a sacrifice. You're willing to give up this chair, every one of you, because that's not a sacrifice, that's a blessing. But are we willing to put everything down as we start this year? Paul was blunt, very blunt in Romans, and I've been working through Romans in an app with some guys, and he said to set the mind on flesh, and it's not just the evil, profoundly moral, immoral, no, no, just to set your mind on flesh, things of this world, idols that become a part, he said, is death. That's pretty harsh. What occupies our minds? What occupies and influences our minds? And so New Year's resolutions come along and we plan and we dream. I had a whole bunch of them. I I love lists. I do. I I put them down all the time and then see how quickly I destroy them. But there they are. I said, you know, I I, I want more Bible, uh, less TV. I want more praying and less whining and more others and less of self and all these good things than that. But the thing, the best thing that I found I could do is start the year off and saying, Lord, my sacrifice, oh God, is a broken and contrite heart. That's what I got to offer. Nothing competes. There's no amount of service you guys can do for this church. There's no amount of accomplishments that you can make. No number of offerings that you can give. No amount of time or talents or treasures unless we deal with the heart first. Lead with a broken and a contrite heart. Go beyond just facts and tradition and ritual. Yeah, that's what the Pharisees did, and Jesus had a lot of issues with them. They were, they were down pat with all the rules, but they couldn't even see truth when it was right in front of them. Isaiah 66, 2, listen, it says, These are the ones, God speaking, I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Those are the ones that are moving in the right direction. See, we deserve wrath, but a contrite heart throws oneself on the mercy of God and all that he has intended for us. And what does it look like? We know what it looks like, like the tax collector. He couldn't even look up. 
I don't deserve this whatsoever, and I am a sinner, and I have mercy on me. And yet, this is the miraculous part of what God is doing in all of this, is that he takes this broken state, and he says, in place of remorse, God says there's an incredible thing begin to work inside of you. And this is what people like David discovered, why it hurt him so deeply, that God's very presence and his power and our position with him changes in this intimacy as we begin to grow in it. And so Isaiah 57, 15, listen to what he says. God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the heart of the contrite. See, that's the goal. That's, that's one of God's mission statements. I'm about reviving you, your heart. What an incredible deal. We who deserve so much worse, given opportunity, experience more than we can imagine. And so when the tax collector prayed alongside the religious one, who did God listen to? We know. Who's he going to listen to this year? When Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Yes, that was in the context of people understanding that I'm a sinner. And I mourn because I have broken and a relationship with God. And maybe the sin we struggle with exists because we have yet to learn how to truly repent. Not just that we got caught or we feel stupid for doing it again, but to walk in holiness and to obey out of intimacy and the disaster that creates when we allow sin to prevail. To begin to say, I got to weep because of what I'm giving up here. And maybe like Job, we're called to rend our clothes and tear them but listen to what joel 2 13 says return to me with all your heart fasting weeping and rend your hearts not your garments rend your hearts we can look the part pastors do really good at looking the part coming across but unless my heart is broken and contrite and rent my sacrifice oh god is a broken and contrite heart And it will be in God's presence, friends, that we begin to taste these things. And if you're putting off spending time, this is what you're putting off, period. It will never be found, like I said, in our accomplishments. You could burn at the stake for your faith. That wouldn't compare to a few moments in uh, glory with God, as many in Scripture have found, that brought such intimacy and such awe in the holiness of God. You, You can't even put a price on it. They'd be going, wow. I'll drop everything right now. We walk through the Christmas season and not forget the truth behind many of these events. And one of them is always, you know, when the angels came to the shepherd. I want you to see a correlation. The very first thing that the angel said is glory to God in the highest heaven. And then on earth, peace to whom on his favor rests. God's glory equals our peace. That's the formula. God's glory is our peace. It will be in our pursuit and understanding in his glory that we will discover true hope, true peace, and true joy. And that's why when we listen in to some of Jesus' prayers for his followers, I am always reminiscent of the words that he said about his disciples as he prayed to his father. And he said, so that they may have 
full measure of my joy within them. Do you see a distinction? It's not just joy. His joy is way different than our joy. There is a complete difference between what God wants to offer as joy and what we pursue and chase after. Our joy is often based on that everything kind of goes our way, joy and happiness, and we mix the two up. But listen to the context of when Jesus said that about the joy of his followers. Listen to the words that it was in context of. He says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. I get it. We experience a lot of crap in our lives. Broken hearts, life itself, defeat and fear and sickness and loss of loved ones and cycles of addiction and the evidence of darkness is so blatant and evident all around us in the world and then on top of that we have a evil one they're hope stealers they're crushers and so we get the brokenness part but hear me better yet hear god isaiah 26 3 you will keep in perfect peace Those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. There's that intimacy. In the context of always stuff that goes on in this world, God says, I stepped out of darkness or into our darkness. He says, I stepped into your struggles and, and, and your sorrows, and I offer joy. And again, not the way you may define it. Victory has been won in the coming of Jesus Christ. It's been won in his sacrifice, his victory over death. The vaults of heaven, they say, have been opened up, and we have been showered with mercy and grace and forgiveness. We've been offered to be adopted into the family of God, and as adopted children into his family, we receive all the rights and privileges that he has to offer and to give us through this inheritance. And it has nothing to do if I keep my sermon to 25 minutes and people are happy. It has nothing to do with performance. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. That's where I stand. That's what I have. That's what's mine. That's the only thing that's going to take me into this new year. Absolutely incredible. A gift of such magnitude. How do we repay it? Well, the verse continues, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. That's how we do it. We give God glory. That is what we do. It's the greatest need of all humanity that God be acknowledged, that God be worshipped as the Holy One. That's our mission statement. And so when Jesus prayed for protection for his disciples from the evil one, again, when he made that prayer, it was in the context of him about to face crucifixion in the next few days. Incredible torment and agony was going to come upon him. And what does Jesus recognize? John 17, 15. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by truth. See, Jesus prayed. They're in this world. We're in this world. That's it. Do all you want. Pray all you want. We're going to be in this world this new year. 
And it's a world full of trials and struggles and things that don't go our way. But God says it is precisely in this context that you can enjoy an intimacy with me so deep that joy will be intertwined in everything you encounter. Not a fake joy where, oh, I'm happy I'm going to die next week. That's not what he's saying. But it's a joy and a depth of intimacy that gives hope in the context of even death. Edward Welch writes, Today the way God people come into his presence is by faith. By faith we have the indwelling glory of the Spirit. As a result, instead of the glory eventually fading like it did with Moses, we can grow to be even more radiant. So how can he say that? Very clearly, 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we who with unveiled faces, is the context of Moses came down from the mountain, it was so bright and glorious, people couldn't like, he had to cover his face. They're going, I can't take it. It's, I know you're not God, but just you seeing him, whoo, can't do it, cover up. And now what we have been offered, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's the essence of being created, by the way, in the image of God. To rejoice in his presence, to love him above all else, to love for his glory, never our own, for his glory. The most basic question of human experience becomes, how, how can I bring God glory? Well, here's how we start. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken and contrite heart. See, my heart's always active. It's either bringing glory to God or it's bringing glory to myself. Being created in the image of God is a verb. It's not just who we are. It is what we are for. People kept saying that. A couple asked me just in Tim Hortons this past week, well, what is daybreak about? What is daybreak about? I pray it will be learning to say yes to God. And it will start with a broken and contrite heart. But it will echo the Westminster Catechism that says the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy or delight in him forever. To glorify God. And when we listen to God and we come with a contrite and broken heart and we allow self-examination, when no sin of ours we discover is bigger than God's pleasure to forgive, that there is no hindrance that can come in the way, we are the ones that idolize others and things and people. We believe that somehow, well, people can humiliate me and people can attack me and they can reject me and they can ridicule me and they can say bad things about me and we take so much of that on upon ourselves and we give it so much weight that we forget what God's saying. God says, stop looking and listening to people. Not that we don't get good advice, but don't be a slave to the fear of man, fear of the Lord. I end with just a couple quotes. This is just one chapter of Romans. And these are quotes that he says, set our minds on the spirit. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I consider our present suffering not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death or life, angels, demons, present or future, nor any powers in all of creation will be able to ever separate us from the love of God. One chapter. And abounding in truth. So one prayer that I encourage us to start with.
My sacrifice, O God, is a broken and contrite heart. 